subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and we've all made it to the end of the week, although <laughs> quite a lot poorer. Uh, right, coming up on today's episode, what's the matter with the lobby? Has the lobby lost it? Dominic Raab's just the latest minister to find himself caught in the headlines. So we're asking, are we just too addicted to drama and claiming scalps, or is it the only way to keep ministers honest? Uh, that's the big thing coming up in just a moment. We'll have the columnists. But first, it's time for this. We learned that it's all kicking off in the Welsh Senate. Listen, let me tell you... Actually, that might be Dominic Raab doing his staff appraisals. Uh, we learned that Jeremy Hunt has got a sense of humour. So let's start with a difficult message for the party opposite. You cannot borrow your way to growth. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we learned that Rachel Reeves pinches her jokes from Shadow Cabinet colleague John Ashworth. And now they want us all to think it was just an aberration, that it was all just a bad dream, that Bobby Ewing was in the shower all along. Now, the Chancellor and Prime Minister are trying to convince us that the mini-budget was all just a bad dream. It's their Bobby Ewing strategy. Amazing. Uh, we learned that Basil Brush would have these people in his cabinet. Zippy and George, they could be, you know, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Bungle, because he likes holidays, he could be the Foreign Minister. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last week, it was Scottish Tory Stephen Kerr insisting... I can confirm, I am not a potato. Uh, now Matt Hancock's come over all Andrew Bridgen. Washer-uppers can clean those potatoes. Because that is washing up. 
Because the potatoes are quite dirty. Yeah, wash your potatoes. We also learned it in the jungle. Matt Hancock's got a new catchphrase. Who wants a bone? Talking of unbroadcastable filth, I went on with Jane in Fee this week and we learned that Fee's got a new slogan for Times Radio. Yank it, crank it and leave the knob on. I beg your pardon. Oh, and I may have said this on the radio. Text of the day so far from John. Oh my Lord, you can't dunk a sausage in a hash brown. Good point, John. Good point. Let me know what you've been dunking your sausage in. 87222, start your message with the word <laughs> You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reed on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the morning. We speak to our favourite columnist on a Friday and it is James Forsyth. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, Melanie Reed. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Matt. Well, I suppose we should talk about the morning after the the, the autumn statement uh, before. Um, James, it's been striking that the sort of overall conservative political response has been quite muted, even though there's clearly loads in there for them to dislike. Um, has Jeremy Hunt got away with it, at least from the conservative side? So, I mean, there were two kind of crucial questions about the, the autumn statement. One was how the markets would react. And the markets appear to have taken it in their stride so far. And the second was how the Tory party would react. And yes, there's been some grumbling, but you haven't got people kind of threatening outright revolt. And I think that the, the budgets or fiscal events, they, they get into danger when individual measures start being picked off. And that hasn't happened yet. People are still taking this as a package. And so I think that, you know, while as obviously the front pages are on aren't kind of, you know, they're not they're not kind of uh, full of joy for the government this morning. I, I think they probably will be relatively relieved. But you you don't that, you know, it appears that you don't have a kind of backbench rebellion against the measures involved and that people seem to be broadly accepting that the, 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 the measures are necessary. Um, Melanie, what do you make of it from outside the Westminster bubble? Well, I thought it was very deft. Um, I think, I mean, it, it, it amuses me that, you know, it can be described almost as a Gordon Brown budget because it, 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 was, it was compassionate and it sort of kicked everything possible uh, forward into the, uh, into the future for somebody else to deal with, stealth tax and all the rest of it. And I think the cleverest thing about it of all is that it is keeping the right wing of the, the Tory party silent at the moment because, you know, they, there's not a lot they can do uh, other than grumble. It's very centrist. It's very non-ideological. And if it hadn't been, um, we, we'd, we'd be in a... We'd be in a a terrible situation. So they, they've done, they've done, they've done it cleverly, and they've done the right thing. It's interesting um, the point that uh, Manny makes, James, about it not being ideological, which is one of my sort of takeaways yesterday. But I suppose there is it is ideological. It's probably more more um, to the left, essentially, given that lots of the things he did were things that the Labour Party have been pushing, putting up the uh, the windfall tax on energy companies, uh, really bumping up tax for those earning more than one hundred twenty five thousand pounds. Uh, you know, while also putting up in, um, benefits and pensions in line with inflation? I, I think what it is, is fiscally conservative, right? That, you know, the, 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 it's basically saying that getting the public finances in order, uh, which is going to always been, as long as I've known him, what, what Rishi Sunak has thought, that you've got to get the public finances in order before you can start thinking about tax cuts. And I mean, that's what it's trying to do. I think it is also a recognition that 
in in the circum in the current circumstances, you know, the the the, the with the nature of this recession and, and how and the inflation that is going on, you've got to protect so you've got to protect certain departments and certain people from uh, the difficulties that are coming down the line. Um, and do you think? that this is a, a plan that gets them back in the game, James? Or is it just a plan which slightly sorts out some of the mess? But actually, I mean, the, the really striking thing is the Conservatives uh, have made no real progress in the polls at all in the week since... Uh, I mean, it, when Rishi Sunak first took over, it bumped up a bit, but it's basically stayed there now. That 45% of people in the YouGov poll this week said that the... The, the, the things coming down, high interest rates, higher taxes, that was the fault of the government. It wasn't to do with Russia. It wasn't to do with uh, inflation and everything else. Does it make it... Is, is this just a staging post towards still an inevitable defeat for the Conservatives, you think? I think the most politically disastrous thing they could have done would have been to have a political budget. I, I think that if the Tory party is going to get the public to, 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 to kind of to, 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 to think about giving them a second chance, it is going to have to require a period of kind of calm, reasonable government, which are, uh, beforehand, I think if they come out of a kind of series of kind of, Here, here's the trap we're laying here, or here's the rabbit out of a hat there, I think the public would, you, you, I think the public is, the public's patience with the Tory party has worn very, very thin. And I think it would have, could have properly snapped at that point. So I actually think that, you know, the fact that this budget is not hugely political it, it, it is one of the things that, that oddly gives it a chance politically. Yeah. What do you think, Manny? But, but can't you argue that it, 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 it is politically deft because it rather takes the wind out of Labour's sails um, in the sense that, They've taken a lot of ground from from you, you. You know, I think Labour is a little bit uncomfortable because they they they, they all the things that they could have they could have attacked um, the Tories on have rather been done for them. You know, the, the he has done what they they would have done to many to a large extent. Um, you know, the the, the uh, back backloading the pain, and they're going to inherit. They're now going to inherit. Um, what he has has has, uh, has set up for them. It's not a political trap, but he's done the sensible thing, and they're going to inherit it, and um, make the best. Well, if you know, if they win the next election, which which does look rather likely at the moment. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, it, it it can be argued that um, it's hard. It's actually quite hard to see how it could have been done more more cleverly i mean i'm i'm just just an outsider i'm not an economist but i um from from uh, from a layman a layman's point of view i i think he's 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 delivered something very centrist and hard to attack from either side i suppose the interesting thing is do we end up having an election uh james which is focused on what are you going to cut rather than what are you going to spend i think the one thing which is true is that because of what happened with Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting, no one is going to be able to go into that election suggesting they're just going to let borrowing take the strain. I think everyone is going to have to detail how they are going to pay for what they're going to spend money on. And I mean, I mean that will that will affect the dynamics of the election campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose that, that's that's which will be a very unusual thing from the sort of yes, we've got free stuff. No, <laughs> we've got free stuff. Um, uh, let's move on, James. And uh, just on your your column today, which is all, all part of it, it was interesting that Jeremy Hunt brought it up. 
the the unemployment rate is still very low. Was it three point six percent? And and you know they're still saying it's going to be pretty low next year as well. But there's a reason for that, and it's not entirely because people are in work. Yeah, it's, 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 there are just huge numbers of people leaving the labour market, um, which means that they're not, neither in work nor looking for a job. I think it's kind of one in five of the working age population is now economically inactive. And the worry is how rapidly it is growing. I mean, tucked away in the OBR document is that in the three months to August, um, uh, 169,000 people, that, that's equivalent to the population of Oxford, became economically inactive. And I think the kind of question is, why is this happening? And I think one of the reasons it's happening is the NHS waiting list are now so long, but there are lots of people, um, particularly people 50 plus, who can't get medical treatment that they need uh, for either a physical or a mental health condition and are then just dropping out of the labour market. And I think that, that you know, you are not going to have uh, a properly growing economy if you continue to lose this many people from the labour market. And so I think that, you know, that you've got this one of the things that the government has to sort out because, you know, it's not just in terms of cutting the welfare bill. You know, another stat in the OBR book is that, you know, they think that health and disability benefits are going to go up by 7 billion um, in part because of this trend. It's also contributing to these labour shortages that are, that are, that are hurting so many sectors of yeah. the economy. Uh, and this is a problem. I know, you know, go back to like the 80s, a similar thing happened. A whole load of people sort of fell out of the, the jobs market never to work again. And then that, you know, that, that become you know, it's, it's, it's bad for them and it's bad for the country. Uh, employment, I mean, in the 80s, employment was, don't forget, it was absolutely, it, unemployment was massive. Then. Mm. I mean, it was, it was much, it was easy then to, to, um, to do so. And uh, yeah, and it became, it became a sort of, uh, uh, you know, that that is when the the, the 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 whole thing about the sort of the, the, the this 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 army of skivers grew up, and the sense that there are all these people out there who who can't and won't work, and you still see remnants of that attitude around today. Um, I think there are a lot of people out there who just need a bit of encouragement. Um, I think a lot of recruiting companies and HR and headhunters um, need to sort of start being a bit more flexible. Um, you know, they're, they're, I've, I've spoken to, to older people who've been keen to do something, but they keep getting told they're overqualified. So, you know, maybe maybe there's things in the system that need to be tweaked as well. Um, maybe we need to we need to look more at disabled people. We need to and say, look, this, this is what they can do, rather than oh no, they they couldn't do that. I think there's a lot of enabling that needs to be done to. Um, flexibility to to um, to to open up the labour market more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um and, and, well, well, I think we're going to we're going to look at that in some more depth on the uh, on the show next week. So I think it's a really really interesting uh, area of policy which hasn't really been looked at. Now you might think it's a bit too early to be talking about Christmas, but right about now your council should be putting up the lights. But councils in Cambridgeshire, Surrey, Bristol, Kent, and Buckinghamshire have all said. Uh, that they're not going to put up lights uh, or they're cutting back. So what do you think about this, James and uh, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid? Uh, Melanie, should councils, you know, they're trying to save money. We're talking about council tax going up by 5%. Should they bother putting up the Christmas lights? Well, it's. I think it's very important for retailers to bring people in. 
to to give a sense of of uh, you know happiness and light and that little bit of magic that that it's for kids. It's also for the inner kid and all of us. And personally, you know, there's nothing nicer than going to a shopping center and you know in the dark and looking up and walking under a, a sort of a roof of white light strung across. It's nice. Um, yeah, yeah. It's lovely. I, you know, it's um, we can be a bit bar humbug about it, but you know. Maybe maybe the councils, maybe it's a very easy thing to cut and they're desperate. I know councils are desperate. It's, it's sad. A, it's also a thing, where uh, James, where um, you know, it brings people into the town so actually possibly spend some money to hope to try and keep some of the shops open. Yeah, interestingly, I was talking to someone uh, who works in retail and they're saying that one of the reasons the shops are starting so early this year is the view is that with, with, with family budgets... Um, straightened this year because of inflation and the cost of living uh they think that basically they need to make the christmas period longer that essentially people will spend little bit at a time and that's why they want to start early but i must admit i slightly shared charles corrin's view about kind of christmas decorations before the first of december it just kind of creates <laughs> creates more panic than is necessary and i mean as i as i ran out to get some built this morning our local pub was putting up its christmas tree and it does it does just you know having a having two, <laughs> having two kids who will be very aware of what they're getting or not getting at christmas it did make me begin to panic that we hadn't bought any presents yet and then i realized it was still only no <laughs> He's answer. still out of November. You're fine. You're fine. Well, let's I tell you what, let's now bring in Britain's most festive man, Jeff Stonebanks. Who, Good morning, man. M- morning. Uh, morning, Jeff. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm, I would have to disagree with your just earlier speaker. I'm into Christmas, getting it ready. 27th of November is Advent. That's technically when you should be putting your Christmas tree up. And I do that every year. Mind you, by 1st of, December, 1st of January, I've had enough and they all come down again, but there you go. Now, Jeff, Jeff, let's just be clear. You're not just putting up one Christmas tree. No, on average, in the last few years, I've put up over 30 in the house. That's 30 <laughs> of different sizes, sort of four or five that are floor to ceiling, and the rest may be sort of 12 inches up to a metre tall. But yeah, that's a lot of, lot of lights. It is a lot of lights. I'm looking at your YouTube channel, and every possible surface and hook has got <laughs> lights on it, uh, tinsel, stars, reindeer, snowmen. It's sad but true, Matt, yeah, I'm afraid. I mean, I've been collecting decorations most of my life. My parents had a pub in the 60s and 70s, and at the age of seven, my mum used to put the decorations up, and the precocious little sod that I was, by the time I got to about 10, she just gave up and let me get on with it. So you so took it over? I've been collecting decorations all my life. Now, how, how do you feel about councils cutting back on this? Well, I mean, I can see both both sides of the coin, but I mean, you've, one of your speakers made a comment earlier that I think it is a way of getting people into the towns because, I mean, I live in Seaford in East Sussex and uh, quite a lot of shops are, are empty, but I mean, the council here have a budget and they have made the conscious decision to go ahead with their yeah. arrangements because I think that is, and I think that is good. But equally, I can fully comprehend why people feel that uh, they're perhaps struggling and they think, well, maybe the council should be helping me rather than putting the decorations up. I think you've got to strike the balance, but again, and he said to go out somewhere and see something with the lights and that it, if you're a child it's quite magical and um i'll ask you all actually james where do you stand real tree fake tree a uh, real tree but Ma- non-drop oh of course of course melanie a uh, real tree stolen out of the forest just behind me oh fantastic that's even better see that's the benefit of not being it whereas, whereas uh james is gonna have to go and spend 400 pounds on one in central london <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, what about you, Jeff? This seems to be, from what I can see on the video, it's a mixture of real and... There is a mixture, yeah. I mean, I, I do like the smell of a real tree, so I always have a real tree every year, and the rest of them are, are fake ones. But this year, I've also I've had a new uh, area created in my garden, and I'm having an outdoor tree in the garden wow. this year as well. Are you worried about your electric bill, Jeff? Well, yeah, I mean... You'll be bankrupt. Yeah. I know, yes and no. I mean, I'm very fortunate that, that, that I'm not in a situation where I have to really think about it. But as I said to your, your colleague earlier on when I was speaking to them, I think that's something I'm going to have to review after Christmas. If after Christmas I look at my bill and think, oh my God, that impact is got I might have to rethink it next year. But this year, no, I'm going whole hog. Uh, I've got the German national television channel coming to film here a couple of times for decoration. <laughs> wow. so I've got to go the whole hog. So uh, we'll see after Christmas. You'll definitely have to put the lights off for them. James Forsyth, the man in the reading. Of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, has the lobby lost it? Hello, welcome to Off Air with Jane and Fee. I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. And this is the new and exclusive home of our joint podcasting exploits. Aren't we grand? <laughs> Every Monday to Thursday evening, we talk all things fact, fun, nonsense, utter gibberish, you name it, we talk about it. We also find ourselves joined by the great and the good. That makes it sound accidental, doesn't it? <laughs> so join us for Off Air with Jane and Fee. Monday to Thursday on the Free Times radio app and wherever else you get your podcasts. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Has the lobby lost it? That's the lobby, the group of journalists based in Westminster, which gives them access to politicians, and they cover politics for newspapers, websites, and the broadcasters. And they, let's be honest, it's we. I'm a member of the lobby. We've had a busy year with three prime ministers. But in recent weeks, we've been following, following these three stories very closely. I apologised, I took responsibility, and that's why... I resigned. Um, but what this political witch hunt is all about is about ignoring the facts of the problem. These were sent in the heat of the moment at a very difficult time. Gavin uh, accepts that he shouldn't have said these things and that 
he regrets it. I'm here and happy to address any specific point she wishes to make, and I uh, will thoroughly rebut and refute any of the claims that have been made. That was Suella Bravman, who faced questions about her resignation and then reappointment as Home Secretary. Oliver Dowden, defending Gavin Williamson, who then resigned over allegations of bullying. And Dominic Raab, who's now facing an investigation into the way he treated his staff. So are these examples of journalists just doing their job, keeping politicians honest? Or have we all got a bit addicted to drama and try to claim another scalp? Someone who thinks the lobby hounds might be going a bit too far is Andrew Jimson, political biographer, who wrote a piece this week for Conservative Home about just this and joins me now. Morning, Andrew. Good morning, Matt. Has the lobby lost it? Well, the lobby's always lost it. The lobby, in fact, journalism altogether relies on exaggeration and the lobby is never happier than when it's engaging in one of these man hunts or woman hunts or witch hunts um, in full eye. Uh, and, and, and at that point, um, the most derisory um, evidence gets dredged up uh, and, and I think it's rather a pitiful sight, actually, seeing uh, extreme, highly intelligent people like yourself, Matt, um, <laughs> sort of spending weeks and weeks in, investigating um, whether a bottle of beer was, was, was raised to the lips of the leader of the opposition in Durham or whether, um, whether the Prime Minister was present when a bottle of Prosecco was opened in some room in Downing Street. Um, it, it, there's a complete loss. I mean, I can see it's great fun, though. I mean, it is like fox hunting in that respect. It's a great sport. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but do you think but there is a there is a loss of, loss of any sense of proportion? I think. Is it? Um, it I, I do wonder whether you, you, you might be right. Do you think it's got worse? Do you think that because of the political turmoil we've seen, sort of since probably my guess is sort of twenty sixteen, you know, you had the endless resignations under Theresa May. The, the journalists have got a bit addicted to, a bit too used to I constant think, drama. I think. Uh, well, it's always easy to say that things have got worse. Uh, I think things have got more manic because it's it's round the clock stuff, and um, you have to sort of follow things absolutely instantaneously. And, and I also think that that things like speeches that politicians give are not covered as well as they used to be. Uh, admittedly, some many speeches are very very boring. Um, <laughs> but I, I found oddly uh, I found oddly enough I found when I wrote um, a book recently about Boris Johnson as Prime Minister his rise and fall. I found that no one had really been able to report his speeches because, I mean, there were jokes, which, which, and, and, and the jokes might be mentioned, but the, he, there's usually, usually, oddly enough, buried beneath the jokes. There's a something he's saying something serious, but, but, but something which didn't fit in the news agenda, and it's this tyranny of the story. It's something. I mean, in order to make sense of it, you have a story, uh, and everything which isn't related to that story gets completely ignored. So there are vast tracts of politics which are not really covered at all. Which also, while we've been talking, actually, somebody's texted in saying, uh, has the lobby lost it? I remember the crazy feeding frenzies during New Labour, so not much has changed. Except politicians have got a yes. lot worse. No point whinging about oh. it because you don't like the Tories, sorry. <laughs> OK. There we well, are. that's true. But Mandelson, I mean, there was, there was always, yeah. they were always hunting Mandelson or whoever it was. So I, 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 I think on balance, I don't think it's got worse. I think it's got slightly different. Um, and um, but I think I mean uh, people wonder whether the lobby was going to perish because newspapers seem to be going to perish. Yes. Somehow it, I have the impression there are just as many very very intelligent, quick witted, amiable journalists in in the press gallery as the, as there were sort of twenty or thirty years ago. And if I, mean, I'm, the, the I remember being of, on the uh, sorry, on the shadowy press gallery committee 
which sounds oh, yes. like a very powerful organisation, was actually basically yes. it's basically sort of toilets and tea making. That's the. Uh, uh, but what, there was definitely a concern about um, the, you know, the number of deaths that we'd need because so many people were disappearing and regional papers. But the influx of digital uh, platforms and you know expansion and all of that meant that I think that's probably as many people in in the press galleries that has that has been sort of in recent times. Let's bring in two of them now. Andrew, stay there because we'll, we'll we'll keep you there. Let's yes. bring in two of them now. Um, uh, rising star of the press gallery, Noah Hoffman, political reporter for the Sun. Morning, Noah. Oh, yes. Morning. Nice to have you with us. And uh, press gallery grandee, I think we'll call him, former political editor of the Times, Phil Webster's here. Hi, Phil. Good morning. Um, Phil, before we get up, come to Noah's experience, what do you think overall? I mean, the texting's quite right, isn't it? You were always giving New Labour a hard time. Well, actually, no, maybe famously not, maybe used so much. But um, uh, there's always been a sort of hounding of, of ministers. Do you think it's got materially worse? I don't think so. I agree with Andrew there, whose piece... I absolutely loved on Conservative Home. I thought it was brilliant and funny. But um, uh, I, I, I think it is slightly more manic because of the 24-hour news cycle and all of that. But I don't think it is any worse. Uh, the lobby, Andrew's dead right, the lobby always hunts as a pack, and yet it is possibly the most competitive body of reporters you'll ever meet. Um, I'm not sure I would always want to go into battle with my old lobby friends, but I was happy to hunt <laughs> with them when it mattered. But you'd always, if you were going into battle with them, you'd be looking over your shoulder because you'd be worrying whether they were going to find an angle that you didn't have. But the pack was a convenient way, remains a convenient way of questioning ministers, tracking down ministers on issues of policy, whatever. It helps if people are on the same wavelength when they get any full question to the press conference, for example, to put your minister on a certain issue. I don't think it's any worse. Uh, I've been thinking about it and looking back, and Andrew talked of the fall of Thatcher, but if you remember the run-up to the fall of Thatcher, there were ministers falling all over the place ever since. During New Labour, Peter Mandelson seemed to be resigning more than he was being <laughs> appointed. Um, yes. I don't think anything is worse. If if anything, I've looked uh, we're rather... Uh, not with any uh, any sense of discomfort at what's been happening recently, but more with a sense of envy that I'm a little bit further away now than I was then. <laughs> well, well, somebody who is right in the thick of it is Noah. And Noah, you remind me, because you started the sun within a, within a week. You basically brought down a minister and then brought down the government. Um, I would disagree with that characterisation. <laughs> Just explain the timeline <laughs> of what happened earlier this year. <laughs> Well, I, as a sort of young and ambitious reporter, was very lucky to receive um, a tip about a very badly behaved deputy chief whip, uh, chief whip, and I literally did my job. I reported a story that was incredibly within the public interest, and the ramifications of it were completely out of my control. Uh, so that is essentially what happened. So you reported that Chris Pincher had been accused of a... Uh of uh, essentially sexual assault, I think, wasn't it, in the in the, the, the club in London. And that sort yeah. of set in train this sort of series of events. And actually, I suppose it's a good example of the lobby not working as a pack, was sort of pack mentality. But you, you reported one thing, and then I think only Wells from the BBC picked up another line about what was and wasn't known about Chris Pincher. And then there's this sort of gradual sense of, 
you know, different lines piecing together. And basically what then happened was it turned out that what number 10 had been saying that Boris Johnson didn't know about Chris Pinch's previous behaviour just wasn't true. And that was what tipped a lot of uh, ministers over to sort of saying, this is the straw that's broken the camel's back. Noah, how have you found it in the last few months then, being in the lobby? Do you feel like you're addicted to trying to bring down a minister every every week now? Because that's how you that's what you did in your first week. I mean, we're not far off a minister going, but it probably is an average of one a week. Uh, since you since you joined the sun, uh, no, I think that's completely incorrect. I think <laughs> one one thing that's been missing from this conversation and uh, missing, I believe, from Andrew's article, is that he sort of said once there's a bad story that comes out about a particular politician, all of a sudden it's this huge race who can dig up the most dirt straight away, um, and he sort of completely omitted the fact that a lot of people come to us voluntarily. So once one person discloses something about a politician, it sort of opens the floodgate to other individuals who have gripes to come to us. Um, so I'm sure Andrew wasn't a massive fan of my tomato story. Oh, um, no, about... I, I love the tomato story. <laughs> Noah, uh, explain the tomato story. So um, I put out a story in the sun uh, detailing an allegation that Dominic Raab uh, hurled tomatoes from his pret a salad um, in a fit of rage while he was um, having a sort of tirade at civil service. Uh, now, I work for a tabloid. That's a slapstick moment. Um, of course, we're going to report it. But the person or the individuals who gave me that story, I didn't go around asking people for their weird Dominic Raab stories. They came to me because they suddenly felt like they had the confidence to speak out about an issue that they previously were a bit worried about. Um, and that tends to happen a lot when a particular politician is under the spotlight. And actually, you know, and we should we should stress Dominic Raab says he's behaved well. He says the tomatoes, he's never thrown a tomato. I think he says he's never thrown a tomato. <laughs> yes, he's denied specifically throwing a tomato. Um, but, um, Phil, actually, what, what, what's happened with this Dominic Raab thing is it sort of started as a sort of you know, one or two stories, vague, you know, vague stories. Then there were some more specifics, including from Noah. And it's ended with the end of the week with two formal complaints going in. So to some extent, you know, this is holding, holding the powerful to account. And actually, perhaps given some people who felt they were treated badly by, by Dominic Raab, the, the confidence to come forward in a way they hadn't done before. So maybe the lobby is is doing something useful, Phil. Oh, I think so. I think uh, you, you've said that. I mean, Noah has become a legend already with the tomato story. But the it is true that uh, in the end, uh, Rob had to refer himself uh, for investigation. Now, that would not have happened if not if if the son and others had not been coming up with uh, with different angles to the story. Um, I think the lobby does has always known when to hold off. And I think uh, the Rob story has just quietened down just that little bit for the moment, because I think um, lobby journalists would realise that the investigations have to now take their course probably yeah. before uh, the story uh, resumes again. And and that the, the, there there is, I think the lobby generally um, knows when it's uh, when it's got its prey, and in the Rob case, I think it may be uh, be some time before this story comes back. I mean, there've been others where, for example, the the lobby uh, and uh, and Home Affairs reporters 
um, being uh, given information from the Home Office, yeah. Chase Bibi Patel, for quite a long time. Uh, she survived for a time uh, before going in the end. Uh, and the Braverman story has calmed down a bit, but we will see it back again, I'm sure, if there are new revelations. Yeah. And also, you know, on, policy, on the policy side, the migrants crisis is, is still very much there. Let's bring in someone who's had to deal with the lobby when they've lost it. So Craig Oliver was a former director of communications for David Cameron. Um, Craig, um, has, give us some, some examples of when you think the lobby, lobby's gone too far. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I wanted to start by saying that I had sort of mixed feelings about Andrew's piece, because on the one hand, I think it made some really strong points about the, when the lobby loses it. But I think he was um, using it perhaps to defend sometimes things that have been pretty indefensible. And at its best, the lobby can be truly heroic. It's, you know, had a ridiculously dramatic time and it's reported it very well, I think, for the most part. But there are times where the lobby does hunt as a pack and it can actually be deeply disingenuous when it does that. Um, there's an example that I would give is that, that there was a new civil servant who came in to be the prime minister's official spokesman when I was at number 10. And the lobby sort of scented blood. They thought he was probably a bit weak. And it was around the time of a kind of another energy crisis and people not being able to afford their bills. And they pushed him for page after page when you look at the lobby transcript, trying to get him to say that people should put their jumpers on. And eventually, out of sheer desperation to get them off the subject, he sort of gave them an answer which suggested that maybe people should turn down the thermostat. No, I was Craig, I was there. I remember it well. It went on for and, such and, a long and, time. And if you and if you read the transcript, it's genuinely shocking to see that actually any reasonable person would say that this person is not telling people that they <laughs> turned down their thermostat and put on their jumpers. And yet it was reported as that. I vaguely remember when, someone literally asked the question, if someone put a jumper on, would they be hotter or colder to try and establish yeah. the well, premise exactly. of jumpers? But it, but, it, but it sounds funny, <laughs> but that guy lost his job because of it. Yeah. And, well, and then the other, thing that, the other thing that I think is um, was quite interesting was that the, the Daily Telegraph reported that David Cameron was going to cut the SAS. And for a Conservative Prime Minister to cut the SAS, that is like the most, the worst thing he could do. And he spent a morning getting endless calls from MPs saying, why are you going to cut the SAS? And he said, I'm not going to cut the SAS. And that day we were going on a trip to Liberia, Algeria and Libya. And the thing is that the Prime Minister is supposed to go on the, go to the back of the plane and face people. And he was livid about it. And I said, look, you're going to face the lobby. Do not say anything on this. You know, I've, I've calmed it down. I've shown that it's not the case. And he walked up the back of the plane. And the first thing he saw was the journalist who'd written the story. And he looked them in the eye and said, oh, well done, well done, great story. Um, but the thing you didn't report was I'm also going to cut the red arrows and kill trooping of the colour. And he turned <laughs> his foot and went down to the front of the plane. And I turned to the lobby and said, look, for the avoidance of doubt, the prime minister was using irony to make the point that today's <laughs> SAS story is not true. Now, when the Daily Mirror then reported that story as a front page splash saying Cameron to cut the red arrows and the trooping of the colour. And I phoned up the, the editor and just said, look, you know, you know, that's not true. You know that if you look at the transcript of that conversation, he didn't mean that at all. It wasn't what he was saying. We talked to the journalist about it afterwards. And yet you still splashed out on it because you thought you could get a cheap story on it. And he said, don't worry, I'll deal with it. And on page 27 of the next day's Daily Mirror was the story, Victory for the Mirror's Campaign. <laughs> now, the reason I tell these stories is that the lobby is capable of being heroic. 
and it is capable of being deeply disingenuous. I thought it was interesting Noah telling the story about the tomatoes. I don't know what happened then, but I suspect, you know, that you could throw a bunch of tomatoes in a bag in frustration and just be a bit irritated, or you could hurl them across the room and use adjectives which were way out of control to suggest an entirely different way of behaving. So I think going back to the point, actually, in truth, I think, Andrew, the lobby's done a pretty good job on chasing some pretty bad behaviour in this case, but is it capable of being deeply disingenuous? Is it capable of misleading people very, very badly? I'm afraid to say, yes, it is. I suppose the interesting um, question about why the question was posed this week, uh, Andrew, is there is a slight sense, and maybe it's just because they all came so quickly, it was like, uh, you know, Bob, Boris Johnson resigned, so we had all of that. Then uh, Kwasi Kwarteng went, and then Liz Truss went, and then sort of Suella Barberman was the one who was uh, in the firing line. And then, well, it became clear she wasn't uh, going anywhere. So then it was Gavin Williamson, and then he did go. And there was a bit of a push on on Dominic Raab. This sort of, and and a lot of them, you know, if there's a particularly sort of policy, you know, mistakes and that sort of thing, and being held to account, that's what another one thing. There is a slight whiff, a little bit, Andrew, that that actually people just think that we need to just constantly be hounding someone until we get a get a resignation? There's a kind of bullying that goes on, although, of course, the accusation against Rob is that he himself is a bully. I think the one thing worse than having a free press would not be having a free press. Yeah. I think it is. And part of our whole idea of liberty in this country is the right to be as rude as we like about our lords and masters. So, And the press is sometimes very, very rude. But, of course, it is sometimes unfair, disingenuous, and picks on on weak people in an unfair sort of way um on the other hand i think number 10 on the whole on the whole gives, gives as good as it gets Certainly well, i was going to say Campbell that did when he was running the show at number 10 a, a mixture of being he, he heroic and disingenuous applies to most politicians as well um sorry a, a mixture of being heroic and disingenuous applies to most politicians yeah. as well yeah, yeah, um yeah. no one what do you make of all of this this sounds terrible all these things that have gone in the past are you are you going to to, to help to clean up the act of the lobby <laughs> I'm not putting it all on your shoulders. <laughs> I, mean, I, think I, I wasn't aware of that mirror example, and I that I think that that's not okay, and I do not see that ever, and have never experienced any instance like that. Um, we joke with politicians all the time, and it is always fairly obvious when uh, someone is being ironic, and we would never report <laughs> irony um, as a fact. Although somebody's probably going to go through some archives now. <laughs> Maybe they were ironic tomatoes. It's, it's, look, taking taking um, you know a joke and presenting it uh, as like somebody being serious is actually one of the most basic things that the lobby does. Look, the other thing that I do think is worth pointing out here that's quite serious in this conversation is a lot of stuff that the lobby covers is actually fed to it by political parties. And actually, the reality is the Conservative Party and the Labour Party have units who dig up information and often spoon feed it to the media. And for a variety of reasons, that is not made clear. And the final point I would make is that I do think that Andrew does make a very serious point that is in actually very, very serious times where we have complex, nuanced, difficult problems that are not going to be resolved for years, often politicians and journalists take refuge in cheap, you know, person deliver you know you know cheap stories that are really a bit gossipy rather yeah. than actually spending enough time focusing on the really complex difficult stuff 
I suppose maybe that's also uh, just finally filled. That's maybe that's also slightly a symptom of politics, which has been very short term. If the politicians aren't talking, we know there are massive problems: the economy and migrant crisis and climate change. The politicians have been talking about themselves so much, particularly this year, but even in previous years too. Everything's been very short term, so everything is a sort of self perpetuating cycle of of is this person going to get to the end of the day rather than what are we going to do about building more houses or power stations or, or you know, employment or tackling climate change? Yes, I agree. I mean, Andrew is right. There are, there have always been very able, pretty clever guys and girls working in the, in the lobby, um, good reporters. Um, but personality stories um, have always been that little bit more comprehensible to the, uh, to the, ordinary to the public generally yeah. than deep heavy policy stories and yes we all love getting into those deep heavy policy stories but if a if a personality story came along if a minister was in trouble it clearly um clearly erred on his on his way to work or whatever um that was the story that the, the journalist would be would be concentrating on that day and i yeah. don't think it's ever going to change um, on on the quieter days, maybe the heavy policy stories will will hold sway. But uh, if there is a personality story out there, our news desks and our editors wouldn't forgive us if we didn't follow it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and you can never get away from that. I can't think we've sort of thanks that Phil. We can't we've sort of returned to Andrew's original original point. It's not the lobby's lost it; it's lost it a long time ago. But that's probably on the on balance, probably not necessarily a bad thing. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs> 